Welcome to the Juniper and Journey podcast with Keziah Ritter and Lindsay Heslap. We're so thrilled you're here. This is a podcast dedicated to celebrating the strength and stories of women, good, bad, ugly, and beautiful in their own words. We believe in the power of real conversations, honest confessions, and playful nostalgia. You'll get to hear all kinds of perspectives from all kinds of women about all kinds of things. We'll talk about life and motherhood and loss and faith. We'll reminisce about the good old days, first loves, and old flames. This is going to be fun. Things might get a little rowdy, but we can guarantee it will be meaningful. We hope each woman's story inspires you towards empathy, compassion, and healing. Okay, let's get started. Hi, everyone. We are so excited to be sitting with our friend Whitney today. Yay. Um, if you don't know Whit, she has the literal voice of an angel. I like yeah. weep every time she actual. I yeah. weep actual tears. Um, and she can also rap every lyric to probably any 90s hip hop song ever. It's factual. It's true. Um, and I love this about you that you have this like contagious laugh that I think if you hear it anywhere, you're like, Oh, Whitney's here. Yep. I love yep. it. It's amazing. Um, but she's just one of the people we truly love the most on this earth. And so we're so thrilled that you said yes <laughs> to being with us today. We um, might have made you say yes. Yeah, we like coerced her a little bit probably. <laughs> but welcome, Whitney. Thank you. Yes. Um, so we want to talk really specifically today about one piece of your story. Um, this obviously doesn't represent like your whole life, <laughs> but I think it's it's something unique. Um, so we kind of want to get right into that. So let's do it. Um, why don't we start? Let's go back. Like when when you were little and as you were growing up, like what did you imagine when it came to family? Is that something you always dreamed about or knew that you wanted? Always, always, always. The only two things I ever wanted to be were a singer and a mom. So anytime somebody was like, what do you want to be when you grow up? I was like, I want to be a singer and I want to be a mom. <laughs> and my some of my dad's like earliest memories, like he's like, when Whitney was a baby, she was like a toddler and we'd be doing the laundry and she'd be holding like the Tide bottle and saying, it's my baby. <laughs> so it's been, always been like a pretty significant part of my like wants and desires yeah well we can't also talk about this without talking about your husband yeah he's all right so he's like you know kind of a part of this too a little bit um so tell us introduce us to him like how did you meet and tell us just a little bit of like your love story um well his name is wilson he's the best we met at a halloween party um, in Denver, like a house party type deal. My girlfriend threw a Halloween party at her friend's house. So my girlfriends and I walk into the party. Do you remember what you were dressed up as? I do. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's significant. <laughs> so I'm not a big Halloween person, but my best friend like goes hard on Halloween. And um, I had for about a decade, like made plans on Halloween. So I didn't have to go out and do like the Denver amateur hour thing. <laughs> and so she knew I had forgotten that it was even a thing coming up. And so she bought us costumes, legit costumes. And we went as the girls from a league of our own. Um, yeah. The like epic softball movie. Yeah. 
Um, it's amazing. It's like potentially right? Tom Hanks' best movie of all time. Like I, I mean, whoa, whoa, whoa. bold statement. Hot takes. Yeah. yeah, he was alone with that Wilson ball. Yes. It's all coming together. Whoa. Um, no, so. We were dressed up as that, like, and I, when I say she goes hard, like, legit, like, we had to go out to the backyard and put dirt on our faces so that we looked dirty. Authentic. Yeah, she made me buy cleats, okay? (laughs) Wow. It was a lot. Um, So anyways, so we, we walk into this party and we'd been at another friend's party prior and um, I was all kinds of ready to go home, not in the meet people vibes. (laughs) and then I see this guy who's like a thousand feet tall and he's wearing a wife beater and aviators and he's talking to this gaggle of girls in the kitchen and I was like, this guy, boo. <laughs> <laughs> I actually said different words, but those are more appropriate. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then my roommate was like, stop judging people. It's Halloween. Just have fun. <laughs> so I was like, fine, whatever. So as we walk in um, and walked by him, he said, like, oh my gosh, like those are those costumes are awesome. Like I've seen girls try to do that costume costume for years and blah, 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 blah. He's like, um, my sister and I used to love that movie. Do you know the song? And I said, Yeah. And he goes, prove it. Um, well, it's, I'm little like, did he <laughs> know. I'm like a singer. That's what I do. Prove what I do for a living. Sure thing, buddy. That so me. I did. I was like, better off, hear that call. And then you know, went on from there and he goes, oh shit, you can like really sing. And I said, uh-huh. And then I walked away. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Just <laughs> brush your shoulders off. It's fine. Bye for now. Um, so anyways, he walked up to me and tried to chat with me a handful of different times through the night. And I was tired and I was DD that night and I was just like not in the mood. Um, but my roommates were giving me a hard time for like not talking to the very attractive man who was talking to me. And at one point in the night, I realized he was wearing a bracelet of the men's ministry of the church that I worked at at the time. And so I was like, oh, do you go there? He's like, yeah, do you go there? And I was like, yeah, I sing there. And he's like, oh, you're that girl. And I was like, well, I'm like a girl that sings there. (laughs) Um, And then he came to see me the next day saying, and I, when he says, when I walked in the middle of the stage, she was like, oh no, she's like that girl. (laughs) (laughs) And he didn't tell me until like 10 months into dating that he actually didn't recognize me that night, but because it was the first time I had responded to him with any sort of like, not yes or no answer that he lied and pretended like he recognized me. But then he's like, but now that I know you, I know that that actually probably made you really uncomfortable and you really hate it when people recognize you. (laughs) (laughs) So that's kind of how it started. And um, yeah, he came to see me sing the next day. And then we talked almost every single day for the next two months and um, went out a couple months later for the first time and have never not talked since. Hmm. Was there a, a point in that relationship where you were like, Oh, this is this is headed that direction of who who I see myself with forever and building this maybe a family with. I mean, yes, obviously because we're right. married now. <laughs> um, I don't know if I can like point to one specific moment. 
Um, he was pretty all in from the jump and I was very, I had been single for a long time on purpose cause I was trying to like ball out and do my thing. And I didn't want to get tied down in Denver cause I had all these plans to move back to California. And so I was just, I was really in the dating game for like the free food <laughs> and, <Amazing>. um, <laughs> I just like wasn't on my radar, but a couple weeks into dating, he was like, and if you know Wilson, he's just the most like earnest person. So a couple weeks into dating, we were like snuggling on the couch and he was like, I just really want to be a husband and a father. And I really think I want those things with you. And I was like, pump the brakes, friend. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, this guy's got to go. <laughs> but I like really liked him at that point. Yeah. So I was like, well, I'll just keep him around a while longer, you know, <laughs> but yeah. So I love that. So once you guys got married, did you, I don't know, every couple is so different in this way. So yeah. I'm curious, did you guys have, not a plan, but was there like a vision that you were like, we want to do some years just married or were there conversations really early on about knowing you have wanted to be a mom for so long and him saying that also a couple of weeks in, was it kind of the expectation that you guys would want a family pretty quickly? I don't ever remember us specifically talking about that, but I was like really, really involved with the kids. I had been nannying for ages. Like they're literally my children. And um, I wasn't even their nanny anymore. But when we met, I was, I watched them every Friday. Like it was like our night together. And like half the time their parents who are my very, very dear friends as well um, were there as well. Like we had like family nights on Friday nights and sometimes they'd go out and just be me and the kids doing like cute stuff and whatever. So like Wilson always wanted to go out on Fridays and I was like, oh, I can't have my kids, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so that was always like a pretty significant part of our relationship. And then, you know, he like went a little nuts in the first couple of weeks and told me he wanted to be the father of my children. <laughs> and I was like, okay, weirdo. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it was always kind of a thing that was that we talked about, but I don't remember a specific day where it was like, do you want to have kids? Okay, right. cool. I want to have kids. Right. Um, it was just always like, well, when we have kids. Yeah. Okay. Um, so when we got married, we were pretty intentional about saying we wanted to wait a little while because we, you know, we weren't living together. We didn't, you know, we got married and then moved in together. Um, and we we're both in our 30s. So we had a pretty significant idea of like how things should go in our own living spaces. <laughs> and I was pretty sure that that was going to potentially be a thing when we moved in together. <laughs> so <laughs> I felt like it was wise to give us some time to kind of do that well. Um, also at the time I was like struggling with some pretty severe health stuff. So it wasn't even a thing that was like really an option. Um, just cause I didn't know how I'd be able to like take care of a baby, but mostly it was that we just wanted some time, just us mm -hmm. yeah. to like be together. Yeah. If you're comfortable, what was some of that health stuff that you were experiencing where you were like, this kind of derails maybe plans like that, that could yeah. be in the future, but also like this is derailing today. Yeah. What what was going on? Um, the day after our first date, actually, I was in a pretty significant car accident. And um, I was like stopped to turn into a parking lot. And 
a man driving like an F-350 um, hit me going 45 miles an hour, and I drive a sedan. Um, we found out years, like literal years later, um, kind of from that day until uh, I guess it would have been like January of 2020. So that was 2014. Um, in December of 2014. And then January of 2020, I had a migraine um, almost every single day of that whole time. Um, so I was in just like a significant amount of pain and I had this like burning, um, sensation in the back of my head for, um, years, literal years. Um, come to find out my jaw was dislocated, uh, and every doctor I had seen missed it. Um, and then once we finally determined that was the issue, my progress was pretty significant. Um, yeah, sucked. Yeah. So kind of experiencing that and this like season of being newly married, um, at one point did that kind of turn a corner where you guys were like, okay, maybe let's give this family thing a shot. We had kind of agreed to waiting a year, mm -hmm. just like going a year, getting used to each other, being in the same house. And so it was kind of around that mark. It was like a little sooner than that, but largely around that year mark, we were like, okay, let's start doing this. Cause I'm, you know, and at this point, like in my early thirties and just wanted to kind of get the ball rolling. What was that like at first? Well, at first it was great. <laughs> you know, you like pull the goalie and you're like, hooray, everything's Woo! great. Um, jokes on us. We didn't need to do that, but, um, uh, yeah, I mean, we just, you know, tried and tried a lot and it was great fun. Yeah. Till it wasn't. Right. Was that shift, like, can you remember a time when that shifted significantly for you or was it more of this like slow evolution? Like this isn't, this is getting more difficult and more difficult Yeah. and I'm getting more frustrated or more sad or was there really a moment that that all hit you? I strangely had always had this fear that like for some reason I wouldn't be able to have kids. I, I don't really, I haven't dug into the why behind that, but I'm sure it's to do with the fact that I just like wanted kids so bad. Um, and I had watched a lot of my friends like walk through infertility or miscarriages and in my family as well. And so it was just one of those things that was always kind of in the back of my mind. Like, I hope that's not me, but because of the stuff I was already going through, I was like, I would bet you money it's going to be me. Mm -hmm. So I was pretty like vigilant early on and didn't wait a super long time. Um, once we were like in the trying mode, which is like the weirdest <laughs> thing to even say, but once we were kind of in that mode, um, I didn't wait very long. I feel like a lot of people wait like, a year or two years or whatever. And I was kind of, I I'm, might not even have been six months. I don't actually remember, but like we tried, we did all the things. And then, you know, I got like the apps to track your cycle. And I started doing that like more vigilantly and you pee on the stick and am I fertile today? And it was just like the nightmare behind all of the things makes it like not fun. Right. 
And then I, like I said, I don't know if it was like, it might not even have been six months. And I was like, I should just go get checked out. You know, we weren't having sex before we got married. And so, you know, nobody had been all up in my business. So I didn't know, you know, it wasn't a thing I was ever worried about before. Mm-hmm. So I um, started going and getting everything checked out and having all these like really painful procedures done to make sure everything was working correctly. And every single thing kept coming back fine, like all normal, all good. So it was more like a timing thing. And then we were in one appointment and it was kind of like the last of the, you know, if this isn't working well, then we'll have this procedure. But she was reading my results, and I think it was called an HSG or something, um, which was like a really painful thing. And we didn't need it, apparently. <laughs> so we were in the appointment after the fact, and she was reading the results. And while she was reading them, Wilson said, well, maybe like I should go get checked out. Like if she's fine, you know, maybe it's me. And um, my obese like kind of jumped on that and said, um, actually, you really, really should because male infertility is much more common than female infertility. And it shocked both of us. And, um, you know, now that I've kind of been through this process and it it's really, really, really common. What were conversations like between you and Wilson at this point? Like, do you remember specific either emotions or thoughts or feelings you guys were wrestling as you're kind of doctoring. And even as you find out this news that maybe it's not you. Mm -hmm. I think up until that point, largely our conversations had really been around my other health stuff. And this was kind of, we, I think I assumed, I don't want to speak for him, but I kind of assumed that like us not getting pregnant was a byproduct of either like I was working too much or just because I wasn't feeling well or the meds that I was on or um, something kind of along those lines. And I think that was the first time that we were like, oh, maybe there's like something more here that we haven't even thought about that we neither one of us even knew was a thing. Um And so we kind of, we walked out of that appointment. I do remember being like, okay, well, we need to make an appointment for you and just make sure we're like playing on the same page, you know, Um, let's figure out what's going on. And if we need to do something, let's do it. That's kind of how I had been approaching it. That's kind of how I approach everything. I'm like, if there's a problem, let's do all the things we need to do to fix the problem. Sure. Um, And I was pretty used to being the problem at this point, because again, it's like, I was in that accident the day after our first date. So we'd only known each other a couple months. And then, you know, for the last three plus years that we'd been together, I was like always in this excruciating amount of pain. So I just never, ever anticipated that it wouldn't be my fault. So what happens at his appointment? Um. So he went in and... The guy's appointments, by the way, are just (laughs) so much easier. And I have never heard anyone complain more about (laughs) what they have to do. It's like, okay, you've been playing that game since you were in middle school. (laughs) 
For sure. Yeah. Like, I realize it's a little more, like, technical now, but, like, you don't understand what we go through, and all you have to do is do a little something, something that you've been doing for a minute. So just enough with your complaining. Give it a rest. Um, So that was his first appointment. (laughs) (laughs) They just had to, like, analyze it. Right. Um, But he got, like, the call back from the doctor, and – Basically, they were like, hey, we need you to come back in and do another sample because we actually don't see anything. Um, So that was kind of like a, what? That seems impossible. Um, Right, even to them to go, actually, something's weird here. You got to come back in. Uh So it was like weird on all fronts. Right. So he he obviously like went back in that day and like gave another sample and – and I'll give him that that second one was probably uncomfortable because he was probably nervous, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm so mean. Um, so he gives the second sample or whatever, and um, then they didn't call back with results that time. They called back and had us make an appointment with the urologist. Um, and I remember being in that appointment, and this guy was Mr. Like, I'm going to be with you every step of the way. Like, we've got to figure this out. Like... It's, it's probably something fluky, like there's probably like a eh, – this is not a technical term, but like a clog or something. Mm-hmm. He's like, we're just not seeing any like active or like live sperm. There's like no sperm count essentially. Um, and so he – like I said, he was like, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, and I'm with you every step of the way. And within that appointment, somehow – he was not with us every step of the way. And we got passed off to um, UC Health to see, like, the head of urology over there. So he's like, yeah, I'm just going to, like, send you up the ladder. Well, we had to wait, like, seven months to even get in there. So this first appointment was, like, in the summer. And our next appointment with the head of UC Health, urology at UC Health was in January. Um, So we were, like, waiting and waiting and waiting. And we go to this appointment and I just, I don't know. I remember it was like a snowy, super snowy morning. I had Bible study that morning. So I like met with my Bible study girls and then we showed up to the hospital in different cars, just kind of like, okay, cool. Like now we're going to see the guy who can actually like tell us the real news. And that's how that day started. <laughs> um, and then we walked into that appointment and Looking back, I actually have kind of a lot of anger around that particular doctor because he didn't do anything. Like, he didn't take a sample. He didn't do an examination. He just read results from six months prior and then started handing us pamphlets for adoption and sperm donation within 10 minutes of being there. What was the anticipation of that appointment? I mean, those seven months and even the time before that, right? That's all. And then you're, what were those seven months like? The anticipation and the, did you try to just kind of forget about it? Or were you still kind of trying or like? We were definitely still trying. I'm like the queen of um, like your emotions should live somewhere around like your intestines. (laughs) So... (laughs) <laughs> for me, I just like didn't even go there or address it. Like we just like kept on the same path. It was like, don't worry about it until it's a thing. Not even worth talking about right. the situation. Um, 
I think Wilson really, really struggled. And he has said during that time and like since, it's like, this is like my one job as a man. Yeah. So he would say, this is my one thing I'm supposed to bring to the table as a man. And then he would kind of get on this. So I'm just like less of a man thing. And I didn't really know how to handle that well. It was like, obviously that's not true. There's nothing in this that's like your fault. Um, and we had been told by the doctor, like, this is like a total fluke. Like there's nothing in your medical history that would suggest this would be a thing. It's not like, you know, he was ever taking steroids, like when he was playing football or, um, like, it's not like he'd been in an, in, in an accident or, um, like a lot of times if a, if a man has had cancer, like that's a thing, like none of those things were factors. It was literally just a fluke. Um, which almost to me like felt like cruel. It still does a little bit. Mm -hmm. So hearing, well, sitting there in this appointment seven months later, being handed, like what was, where does your mind go in a moment like that? And do you remember, do you remember the rest of that day? Yeah. <laughs> like weirdly specific details. Um, I felt like frozen in the appointment. Um, I kind of like had looked at Wilson. He was like sitting to my right and the doctor was kind of across from him. And um, I felt like all I kept telling myself was don't get emotional. Like it's not your moment. Um, and I just remember like looking over at Wilson and his mouth was just like open and he looked like so confused. And then I started getting like mad at the doctor. Like it was his fault. Um, but now again, like I said, like looking back, I'm like, there were a lot of things he could have done differently. Um, and it, has really struck me since like you have a lot of power in the medical community over the trajectory of someone's life. And I felt like he didn't take that seriously. Um, especially in the news he was delivering. Um, so he kind of went on and on about how we could do He's like, well, we couldn't have you give another sample and we can freeze it. And he's like, and then we can start your wife on IVF meds. Um, but the chances of us actually getting any good sperm, like when it comes time to, you know, harvest the egg and do all the things um, is really slim to none. And he, but when we left, the thing we walked away with was that our options were sperm donation, adoption, um, and, or the zero to 1% chance of having a biological child that he had given us. And then we left and we were in two separate cars, which at the time I thought like, oh, this is terrible. But looking back, I'm like, thank you, Jesus, that we were in two separate cars. We went to lunch and I literally could not speak. Um, we were both kind of like frozen in time a little bit, but 
I literally couldn't speak. And then Wilson's boots had a hole. His <laughs> like Sorrell's had a hole. And I was like so mad at him that he wouldn't just buy new boots. I'm like, what are we doing here? Like we're we're old and like established. Like just buy new boots. Like I was so angry. Clearly not about the boots, but <laughs> um, so I like made us go to Park Meadows and go to whatever it is, Dick's or whatever. And I was like, we're buying you new boots today. Like this is getting ridiculous because it was a really, really, really snowy day, like past easily six or seven accidents on 225 on the way back. Um, like watched a car spin out and face me in front of me on the way. And on the way, I was like hysterical. Um, like the <gasps> crying, which is not my bag. Um, you were alone in the car. I was alone in the car. And so you in the horrible snowstorm, like gut wrenching sobbing. Yeah. And it was like, you have to, I have to get it out now. Like I can't cry in front of Wilson because this is like his news. Um, which is advice I've given to friends who are also going through infertility, um, since then is like, it's neither one of your news. It's like both of your news and like both of your grief. And the best thing you can do is like talk about it and grieve it together. Um, cause I, I do think that we shooting. <laughs> I do think that the thing that we struggled with in the beginning was that we were trying to like grieve it separately and like in a really sweet way, trying to like spare each other the pain, but, um, you know, it didn't help either one of us. And so I think when we started grieving together, um, we handled the, the situation and the pain and the grief much better. So we got the boots <laughs> um, and a, a couple of my really close girlfriends knew that we were having that appointment that day and kept texting me like how to go, how to go, how to go. And I wasn't responding. So then they started calling and I, I just kept declining and finally I turned my phone off and then they started calling Wilson and I was like, oh geez, here we go. Right. So I texted back and I was just like, this is what happened. I don't want to talk about it. Um, and I'm sitting on a bench in Dick's Wilson's trying on Sorrell's and I had a hat on and I was just like sobbing silently. And I was like, we have got to get out of here. This is my nightmare. <laughs> not a big fan of crying alone. Definitely not a fan of crying in public. <laughs> the dicks <laughs> like i was cool. just i was like who have i become <laughs> um so we got the dumb boots what a weird thing to focus on in that moment but that's what i was focused on and then we went home and i always spent a number of days just like in bed like weeping together um called the pastor who had married us and um just like talked through some of that and i don't know nothing was better nothing was fixed and my one of my best girlfriends who had been calling and calling and calling finally i answered i don't remember if it was that day or the next day but i finally answered and she was like i just think you should go get a second opinion and second opinion and i was like this was our third opinion like, I don't 
I don't want to keep doing this. If it's a no, we need to grieve the no, move on with our lives and like start a new path and a plan. Like, are we cool? Just the two of us forever and our dog slash many dogs, I guess that we would start getting. (laughs) Um, and if we're not like, uh Oh, like we need to get good. Just the two of us. Um, but she just kind of like kept pushing me. Like you need to call Dr. Schoolcraft. Like he's right by where you guys are living right now. He's the best in the world. You've got to do it. Just do it. Just call. And honestly, I just called. So she would leave me alone for like a couple of days. Um, so I remember we were laying in bed. Wilson had just gotten off the phone with like the pastor who married us. And I was like, I'm just going to call because she won't leave me alone. So I called and I was on hold and they didn't have an appointment. Again, this is January. So they didn't have an appointment until July. And I was like, whatever. So I'm on hold waiting for them to make the appointment. She comes back on the phone and she says, um, we actually just had a cancellation for two weeks from today. Do you want to come then? And I was like, no, I do not want to come then. I want to get over the fact that we're never going to have a baby and I want to move on with my life and just like be happy that we're like childless people. Um, but I made the appointment and it was, it was almost worse because it felt like, well, now we have to wait again. We're going to do this again in two weeks. We made the appointment and then we stayed in bed for days and just cried about it. (laughs) The piece of like deciding like who to let in on that. Cause I would imagine like that's a struggle too of knowing how much are we sharing? How much do we want to share? Because then it's, I can't just lock myself up. People now know this and are going to like call and call and call until I answer. So will you talk a little bit about just navigating like those decisions, how you decided who are we telling? And also, even if that was good, that it was maybe brutal sometimes (laughs) having to share it. Yeah. Um, for me, I'm not a big sharer. (laughs) <laughs> I'm more of like the suffer in silence until you're over it and can buck up and put your big girl pants on and move on with your life type. Um, and it just so happened that God had just placed all these people in my life over the couple years prior who didn't let me act like that. Um, so I was all kinds of prepared to not say a word. And I really felt strongly that it like wasn't, my news somehow, even though it it was my news, there's this weird thing about secondary infertility that it feels like I shouldn't, I don't want to share that like about my husband because like he's embarrassed about it and he feels a lot of shame around it. And I mean, all the things that I would have felt if it were me, but I think I said this already, like I didn't know how to navigate well the fact that I wasn't the problem. And my biggest feelings were like, why couldn't it have been me? I'm good at being okay with like being sick. Um, but because it was him, like 
that was almost like more destroying to my heart because he's like the nicest person in the entire world. And he feels like very, very deeply, not that I don't, but he feels very, very deeply and on the outside. And, um, I was just like watching it tear him apart. And I don't know, that was really, really difficult, but I had people who just kind of already knew that that's where we were and that's what we were walking through and that we kind of had this appointment and I couldn't not give them that news. And, um, I think that was a saving grace for me because I wouldn't have chosen to do that. So that was like one of the ways that God was really faithful is like he, he made a community be in my life. I didn't have to like seek it out. Um, so that was really difficult. And those people showed up for me in just like really amazing ways. And, um, you know, like <laughs> leaving a bag of like feel better that your life sucks stuff on my desk at work. And largely it was like old fashions mixings, which is my favorite. It's like the way to make me feel better is with bourbon. So it was just so good. Um, and candles and, you know, um, and so that was helpful, but again, it's just like something I didn't want to talk about. Um, I think Wilson talked about it a lot in his, um, kind of circle and men's groups and stuff. Um, and I'm like really thankful that he had that because I think it would have destroyed him. Um, me too, probably if I had been my normal old self that tried to like handle everything on my own, probably wouldn't have been a bad situation. So I didn't choose to tell people I was kind of forced into it, but like I said, that was kind of a saving grace. So what happened at that next appointment? <laughs> um, that you're probably dreading. Oh, it was awful. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, is it weird to like drink before a fertility appointment? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we need this. <laughs> Could you like bring a flask yeah, or is this like, this is this like what you do at dry weddings? Like, is this, <laughs> um, yeah, it was not a fun day for either one of us and holy smokes. I mean, I'm so thankful for the clinic that we found and the doctor that we had, but it is a whole thing. We had to be there at 6:45 in the morning and we were not done until almost three. Oh my gosh. And it's like you're in and out of all these rooms. Like you start in this one room getting a whole like lecture on how IVF works, IVF versus IUIs. And you're with like eight other couples and everyone's just like awkwardly staring at each other like, this is my nightmare. Mm -hmm. And then we had to go and they call it like your workup day. And then we were eat like he had to go downstairs and do his like middle school boy vibes. And I had to like go get blood work and have stuff shoved up my hoo-ha. And um, then we would like meet back for lunch. And then you this other thing with like somebody who is a counselor. And she's like, if at any point in this process you need a support group, like we have those and this and that. And you're like, 
what is my life right now? Like, can I just see the doctor? Um, and then the last person you see is the doctor. Well, that's not true. The second to last person you see is the doctor. And he, he's so great. And he worked really, really well for me because I'm just like a no nonsense. Like give me the facts, no fluff, just like, let's make a plan and execute the plan. Um, but I like laugh about it now. It's kind of funny to me now, but he was like, Oh, the problem's like just with him, not with you. Oh, you're healthy. We can get you a baby. It was like, Ooh. are you allowed to say that? <laughs> I and we were just sitting there, and I'm like, but we were also just told like zero to one percent chance, right? And he was like giving us the one as like a, you know, shot in the dark type deal. So we kind of sat there, and I I think I literally made the like, oh, <laughs> what sound? <laughs> Which is funny now, but at the time I was like, I don't, I'm going to need more information. Like this doesn't make sense. His part is fairly significant. What do you mean? Get me a baby. Like how are we getting the baby? Yeah. Because the other options that we'd been given a couple weeks prior weren't good options to me. Um, at that point, I'd always thought adoption was like this beautiful, amazing thing. And actually before I met Wilson, I was like getting ready to apply to be a foster mom. Cause I was like, I'm a baller. I've got a business. Like I can do all these things. <laughs> and like, I don't know when I'm going to meet somebody. So I'm going to just like start fostering kids who need a mom. So I was like all in on fostering and adoption, whatever. And then the second it became our only option, it was like the dirtiest word in the world to me. And he was like, we're not using a sperm donor. That's too weird. <laughs> Um, so it was just like, okay, well, we're like not having kids until my heart heals from whatever this is. And I get back on board with adoption, which I knew would happen eventually. But so he's like, we'll get you a baby. And like, but like how though? (laughs) Because the options that we have are not currently options for us. And this is like where that kind of anger at the man we had seen prior came into play because um, how they were practicing the medicine was like relatively archaic. And I had this moment of like, you mean because you have chosen not to progress your medicine or study this medicine, you're the head of urology at UC Health. Because of the way you're practicing medicine, you're telling people they will never have children. And this guy's telling me that if you change these two, not not even what you were going to do, but the order in which you do it, that we'll have no problems. Um, so essentially what they said was like, there's no way that he doesn't have any good sperm. That would be an extreme situation. What's probably more accurate is that he he just has a very low count and very low motility. And so we're going to take his sample and do this like special spinning thing. And then it basically takes all the good stuff to the top and whatever. 
And the other place wasn't going to do that until after they'd put me on IVF meds and run me through this whole thing. He's like, no, we'll do that first. And then we'll freeze that good sperm. Um, he's like, and then we'll start you on your whole path. He's like the, what we do is the day of your egg harvest. Um, we also have Wilson there and he gives a live donation which we will then inject immediately into the egg. Like the second we take it, we put the sperm in the egg. And he's like, on the off chance that he gives a donation and there's nothing there, we also have a urologist on standby who will do an extraction. And he's like, he will literally just like pull out what he can go in with this special tool and he can see which ones are good. And he'll pull that one out and put it in your egg. Which is like all very scientific and like not a cute story at all. But, but it's how it happens. <laughs> it's how it happens. And also the most hope that you've been given at that point. Yeah. I mean, we're a couple years into this. Right. And I'm like, I'm very, I'm very logical. So I'm like, well, that makes perfect sense. So I was like, Time out. What you're telling me is that the only thing that's different in how you do this is the order in which you do it. Like I said, and he was like, basically, I was like, well, how long has this been a thing? He's like, I've been doing it for like 25-ish years. And I'm like, Ugh. so like my like rage <laughs> started to like bubble at this other guy. Um, I was just ill-prepared for how all of that would like land on us. Um, I had been, this is the first week of February in what year was that? <laughs> I think it was 20, whatever. doesn't matter. Um, I had just been a couple months prior in November in Israel leading worship for a retreat. Um, and I felt like one of the things that we were challenged with by the speaker was to like write a haiku. And the whole time I was there, I had this like raging migraine and I've been like still struggling at this point. We still didn't know my jaw was broken. Um, and one of the things that I walked away from that with, I like, I wrote my haiku and the first one had a lot of cuss words and like the second one had less cuss words and then like the last one I actually like really love and I have it like in my Bible. And um, the last line of it is like, this pain has purpose. And I, um, at the time, associated that with like the physical pain that I was like walking through. And it was interesting because that line had been like repeating in my head for days prior before writing that. And because um, I, before being in Israel, we were in Cyprus. And so the whole time we were in Cyprus, I was pretty sick, like throwing up all day, every day with this migraine stuff and leading worship for this thing and whatever. And then we we're in Israel and then she assigned us the haiku in Cyprus and I did not write it till a week later. And I really associated that with like my physical pain. And then all this stuff happened in January and, um, the like second that that doctor told us that we had like a 0% chance. That was the first thing that like popped into my head. And I was like, Oh God, that's like really actually kind of annoying. 
I wish that you would just leave me alone and like, let me have my moment. But every time we were like sitting around and crying, I would like almost audibly hear it. Like this pain has purpose. And I like equal parts love and hate it. And so when we were in that appointment with the the fourth doctor, I started, you know, like I said, feeling that like rage, like rise in me at the guy we had seen prior. And um, I heard it again and it was like, this pain has purpose. And I was like, okay, well, I guess this is like what we're going to do. Like, we're going to try it, I think. But we weren't sure. I mean, we did, we walked away from that and then you meet with the financial advisor. They're the last person you see. (laughs) (laughs) So you've gone through this whole day of horror. (laughs) You've gone through this whole day of like horror. And um, then you get your like glimmer of hope back. And then they put you in a financial person's office it's just like the personality difference there is like so aggressive. <laughs> this is all jarring. <laughs> and then they hand you this piece of paper that's like, well, this is what this costs. And if your insurance covers it, this is what it costs. Ours didn't. And, but here's this like great deal we can give you. And if you sign up for this, your first round of whatever, we'll give you 10% off. And you're like, that price tag is still a down payment on a house. Um, so we walked away being like, cool. Um, not sure if we're going to do that, but it apparently is a possibility. So we, we just like sat with it and like prayed about it and talked about it. And I went into like logistical mode. Um, you know, at this point I'm spending, close to $3,000 a month on the doctors and the treatments that I'm getting for like my migraines and my jaw and my, well, actually we didn't know about the jaw yet, but migraines and the pain and all the things I'm like, this just doesn't seem like it's like a doable option. I mean, in case we could like, like how bad do we want a kit? Like, are we taking out a loan? Um, we were in a pretty bad spot because the insurance company of the guy who hit me had like never, paid out. So we were actually like suing them. And there was this whole thing with the attorney. And, <laughs> um, so it, it was a couple months of sitting around being like, are we going to, are we going to do this? Are we not going to do this? Um, and, um, some really good friends without telling us or asking us, which is probably for the best. Cause we would have said no, like started to go fund me and like posted it secretly and privately and like blocked us from all the things. Um, and a lot of our really good friends and people we didn't know and people from church and like donated to that. And, um, the day that they told me about it, cause I guess they had reached out to my sister and asked her like, and she was like, Whitney will really not like this. <laughs> She's like, it's really, really nice. And she'll say that it's really, really nice, but like, I don't feel comfortable with this. And she's like, she'll definitely say no. And I don't feel like it's okay to like do it behind her back. 
So the morning that they told us about it, and this is months later. So this is, it might've been May of that same year. So we're like, we don't know if we're doing this. We don't know what's going on. At this point, we're actually in a lawsuit with my former attorney because he had missed the statute of limitations on my case. So we had to like sue for malpractice to be able to get any sort of insurance money from this horrible accident I had been in. And as I was driving to like have coffee with these friends, um, I was on a call with like our new attorney and Wilson and the judge on the thing and we're going through mediation and it was just this whole big mess. And he gives us this price tag of like what it's going to cost if we move forward and don't settle essentially. And I was like, well, this is a nightmare. So I walk into this Starbucks to meet my dear friends and um, I have this like number like looming in my head and I sit down at the table with them and they tell me this thing and I'm like, that's like so kind. I don't feel worthy of that. I don't feel like we we don't even know if we're going to do this. Like, I don't feel comfortable taking that money. And they're like, well, you can use it for your other medical stuff if you decide not to do this. But like, you know, we, we would like this to be, you know, this specific amount. Like if we could raise that much, that'd be amazing. And it was the exact same amount that the judge had just said it might be if we went to arbitration. And I kind of like stopped in that moment. And then that line (laughs) like played through my head again of like, this pain has purpose. And I was like, what in the world? Like with all of this, like I, this is not, this is not how I want my life to go. This is not my story. Like, (laughs) um, so I just like, I felt like that little kind of mantra just like popping into my head was a sign, if you will, that I was like supposed to say yes to them. Then we decided I was, so once we said yes to that, I was like, okay, I feel like we have to move forward with doing IVF. And even though we could use it for medical stuff, we might end up getting this settlement. And I just want to make sure that we're being like good stewards of money that people are just like gifting us, which is so weird, but so nice. (laughs) So that's how that went. Did you feel relief making a decision knowing we are going to move forward or did all of that still come with so much uncertainty that it was like, this is just the next thing. We're just in the next part. Yeah. More that. Um, I honestly don't even know if I like feel relief yet. So no, I did not feel any sort of relief. It was more like a, Oh no, we have to like do this. I think Wilson was maybe excited a little bit. And I had had enough friends and people close to me walk through IVF that I like didn't have any sort of excitement or joy or hope around it. At all. Because just because walking through IVF is so tumultuous or you had watched it fail enough times to know. Yes, both things. And I learned 
through those couple years that I actually didn't really have any hope. Um, just in general, like not in regards to specifically that, but I, I had, I had been working through the fact that that was something I didn't have the ability to even like tap into just from the couple years of like stuff that I'd already been walking through. And I like looking back, um, I think it was because I, I sing for a living, right? That's all I've ever wanted to be the singer and this mom. And when I was in college as a vocal performance major, I lost my voice and I was told I would never sing again. And one day, and there's a lot more to the story and there was a lot of work that I put into it, but like literally one day I couldn't sing. And then one day I kind of could again. And then I worked really hard to get my voice back. And it was literally a miraculous healing. Like when I went back to the doctor, they're like, I have no idea. Like you genuinely shouldn't be able to sing. And like, still they'll look at my vocal cords and be like, doesn't make sense that you do what you do. So I knew God was capable of healing me. And I was watching him not heal me. And it's like, it's like one thing to like know that that's a thing in the Bible and kind of work through, but it's maybe not my story. It's quite another to like have it already have been your story and then be doing it again. And it's like not a thing. And so that was something at the time that I was like really working through like personally. And then with my counselor about like, how do I get over this? Um, but yeah, walking into that, I was like, it felt safer to be like, it's not going to work based on how the last handful of years had been going. What's something that surprised you about the process? Even though they sat you down and said, this is what we do (laughs) while you were actually doing it. Were there parts of it that you, yeah, I guess for somebody that doesn't know really what, what it entails, like give us a, a glimpse of what that actually is like. It is the worst. Um, let's see. When we finally started it, it was a couple months of like basically just like hormone pills that you're taking. Um, and everyone's, if you're going to a really good IVF doctor, <laughs> you're regimen should be look really different than somebody who's maybe walking through it at the same time because it should be based on your body makeup and your hormone levels and all of your blood work um so if it's something that you're considering do the research on the doctors and their success rates and who their success rates are with did they have success because they had a donor like is it a same-sex couple and they have a donor? 
and that's why they're really successful at that clinic? Or are they working with men and women? And is the infertility on the woman's side or the man's side? And like, find out those statistics before you like move forward, because that should inform whether or not you use that place. That's my little PSA. Um, so I am a total psycho. So I did all that research and uh, <laughs> I literally made them break it down for me in percentages so that I could see it on paper, um, how their percentages worked out. Um, but yeah, you start with, at least in my situation, I did two months of like over the top, like estrogen, um, pills before I even got started on a regimen for, um, like the egg harvest. Um, that is a pretty intense couple weeks long of shots, which you're giving yourself at home. Um, uh, morning, noon, and night in a lot of cases. Um, my stomach was black and blue. Um, cause you're giving injections like into like the fatty part of your like stomach, like by, by your belly button. So it was like all around my belly button was black and blue for months. Um, um, uh, some of the injections go in like the top of your butt. So my butt was like black and blue for months. I'd be like singing at church and have to like pop into the bathroom and do a whole regimen. I'd be, I'd be like out to brunch and have to sneak into the bathroom and do it. And, um, it just, it became this like routine. So I almost like, I'm a person who finds a lot of, um, comfort in a routine. So if you give me like a routine and a regimen, I'm a gangster. I can do that so well. Um, so I was like, okay with all that stuff. And then meanwhile, you're getting your blood work done every single day. So every single day I'm going in and getting blood drawn and, um, and then I'm going in and having an ultrasound and like, not the cute, like on the belly, look at the baby ultrasound, like all up your business and like not ideal. And they're checking like follicle growth and they're tracking all the stuff and giving you numbers that you kind of understand, but largely don't. Um, and then they put you in a room and you haven't, and you wait for like 20 minutes and then a nurse comes in and like shares the stuff with you and then tells you how much drugs to take the next day. So that goes on for a couple of weeks. And then once they have a good amount of follicles that are the right length, um, those follicles equate eggs um, then they schedule your harvest and then they tell you to like trigger. So you do this like trigger injection. And if you miss it by like any sort of like increment of minutes, it will affect whether or not your harvest is successful. So it just turns into this like yeah, moment that you're like feeling. Yeah. And all the while they're like, and stay calm and feel zen. And you're like, two, two fingers way up. <laughs> that's how you're like walking into this egg harvest where you're supposed to be like so chill and so Zen and all the things you've spent a significant amount of money. And they're like, well, do you want to send them for genetic testing? Which is another three grand and takes three weeks, but you've spent all this money and you're like, yeah, I, I want to know the pain of going through IVF is bad enough. Um, 
implanting an embryo that then might not survive and then you have to deal with the miscarriage and then maybe choose to go back and do another transfer. Um, I just didn't think I would handle that well. When they came back, we had one embryo. And then you talk with your nurse again and then you talk with your doctor again and then you have another appointment and basically they talk you through your options. And what our option ended up being was we could do the whole process again to what they say, to what they call um, bank more embryos. So basically to get as many embryos as possible. Or, you know, you can move forward with the transfer of the, the one healthy embryo that you have. At this point, I'm like not doing great emotionally. And we got off the phone with the doctor that day and I just like burst into tears and I told Wilson, I just don't want to do this again. I was like, I don't feel like it's being a good steward of our money. Um, and they're going to use this embryo first, no matter what, because that's just the way the, the laws work. You have to use the one you ended up with first. And then after that, you can like pick and choose, I guess, but, um, they're going to do this one no matter what. And I would just rather know if it's going to work. Like I don't have, I don't have it in me to do this again. And then he was like, I don't either. So we decided to move forward with the transfer. And then even that was like this whole big technical ordeal. So it's like, you can do a natural transfer or a, I don't know. It, it's not called this, but an unnatural transfer. So essentially one of them, they put you on birth control and control like when your cycle will start and end and whatever. And then you go through a whole nother round of like shots and drugs and all the things. And then when your uterus lining looks like amazing, that's when they transfer. Um, and the other one, I picked it because I was like, oh, natural. Cool, right? So it's like when you go to the store and you're like, oh, 100% natural. And then you look at the ingredients, you're like, this is garbage. <laughs> That's kind of exactly what happened. Um, it was not natural. It was like all the same amount of drugs. And those meds, by the way, are an extra like five or $6,000 that you weren't planning on. And the initial meds are like between like ten dollars and $20,000. On top of the price tag you're already paying to do the whole process. And it's all just like insane. And there's all these pharmacies you can use. Like, and I had to go through a list of like 26 pharmacies and call and go through all my meds and say like, what's the price on this? And it took me like three days each time. And both times I used a different pharmacy because the prices were better or worse or whatever. And it's like, that's another thing that like some clinics don't tell you. They just like tell you to use this one because that's the one that they use the easiest. And it's like that price tag could be potentially like putting you in the poorhouse. There's other options out there. So we did the natural version, which wasn't natural, and um, did our embryo transfer. And then you're awake and they shoot it in you and then show you a picture of it. And Wilson was so cute. He like went and took a picture of the embryo when they brought it in. And it's just like this like blob. I'm like, cool. I'm so glad we have that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then they ask you to be on bed rest for like a day. Um, but our doctor, when he first started his practice, 
was having insane success rates with IVF when it was like really, really experimental because he was having a lot of people fly in from other countries and you have to like, you can't travel right after you had it done. So he, um, figured out that his patients who were coming in from other countries, their success rates were much higher because they were laid up in a hotel for like three or four days, like basically on bed rest than his clients who were local. Cause they would like kind of go home and do whatever. Um, and so he started adding that into his protocols. So I basically like laid flat on my back and we have one of those like old people beds where like the feet come up or like the head come up or <laughs> whatever. So I basically just like laid kind of upside down for like three days. And, um, then I tried to go about my life and then like 10 days later you go in and get a blood test to find out if it works or not. Did you have moments where you like, where you let yourself think about it working? Not one time. I just felt very dangerous. I was 100% prepared for it to be a complete tragedy. I had two trips like ready to purchase for the day we found out it didn't work so that we could like go to the other side of the world and sit on a beach and just cry for like two weeks. <laughs> that was how I walked through that. So you go in with Wilson? <laughs> Funny story. No, my mom drove me because Wilson had COVID. Oh, oh my gosh. So six days after my transfer, and he's a firefighter and a medic. And so they were running on all these COVID patients because again, this is like 2020. Um, so he came in the house, got his weighted blanket and like went to the basement and texted me and was like, I think I'm sick. Got a COVID test the next day. And so my mom offered to drive me and I was going back and forth with like, should I be alone? Like in case it's like, are they going to tell me right there? Like, cause if they are, then I don't want her with me. I want to be like alone. And also I just don't know. I, but I was, because I was like, so wishy-washy on the whole thing. I was like, yeah, just take me whatever. So my mom takes me, we're leaving and they basically are like, okay, good luck. And, um, we went and like ran a couple errands, um, got a Starbucks and then on the way home, I got a call from the clinic and I was like, oh, I'm not answering this in the car. And they called like three times and didn't leave a message. Now, mind you, we've been with this clinic for years now. They leave a message about literally everything. So they they had called three times and hadn't left a message. And so I'm like, okay, well, I definitely know it's a no. So I'm going to like go inside, like maybe have a quick cry. So I like went into the bedroom and I like sat on the bed. Wilson's stuck in the basement and I'm like, okay, now's your moment to cry. And then I was like, I don't feel like crying. Cool. So I went downstairs and we're like masked and gloved and all the things because I'm maybe pregnant and he's definitely positive. And the way their house is set up is like, there's a bedroom and then like a bath and then another, so they have a Jack and Jill bath. So I stood in the doorway of 
my old bedroom and he was in the doorway of my sister's old bedroom and we're both like in our masks or whatever because we don't at this point know you know any of the things and I was like okay they called like we need to call them back so we like sit down I put the phone in the middle of the hallway and I call back and our nurse is not available (laughs) and I was like I was like I'm going to die like this is how I die so I was like okay well I'll just stay down here until they call me back so he's like all right so he closes the door goes back in and you know, does his like bachelor life PlayStation nonsense in his COVID room. And I'm like sitting on the couch, like watching SVU. (laughs) And then she called and I was like, oh, she's calling, she's calling, she's calling. calling." So again, so we sit it down and again, I'm like, which are we going to Fiji or are we like going to go to Thailand and like tour around? Like which surf trip are we doing? So we open the doors. I'm sitting in the one room. He's sitting in the other room. And she's like, okay, Whitney. Um, So she starts reading off, and this is not uncommon. She's like reading off the level of each thing. So like your this is at this number, and your this is at this number, and your this. And I'm like, I don't care about any of this stuff. Yeah, yeah. Also, I have no frame of reference for what that even is. (gasps) So, and she's like, okay, so it looks like, oh, and this is not the nurse we've been with for the last three years, because our nurse was out on medical leave. So the nurse that we had that morning, we've only had for like two weeks. Um, Because you at this clinic, at least, you are assigned a specific nurse, and they're the one that calls you with all your information. So she's scrolling and scrolling and scrolling, and I'm like, oh, my God, this cannot be happening. And my biggest plan was like, don't fall apart completely. Like, take a breath and then figure out how sad you want to get. (laughs) Just like a very Whitney way to handle things. So she's scrolling and she's like, okay, so it looks like you are, and then I heard her click something and she's like, pregnant. And Wilson like hit the ground, like slammed his hands down, like face on the ground, ass in the air. And he's like sobbing. (laughs) Thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus. <sighs> and I said, oh, cool. <laughs> I can see it all. I can, I can see it. <laughs> and then she starts reading more things off about, well, you, we want this number to be here. And yours is like, I mean, I'm like hundreds of numbers, like higher than like what they want the baseline to be, right? And my response every time was like, oh, it's, that's good. That sounds good. Good. And meanwhile, Wilson's sobbing and screaming, thank you, God, thank you, Jesus, like so loud. And finally I was like, I can't hear you. My husband just like keeps yelling. <laughs> she was we like, to call you back. <laughs> she was like, well, congratulations to you both. And just call me if you have any questions. So we like hung up the phone. And... I just sat, like, I couldn't move. I just sat there and I was like, oh, I was so prepared, so prepared for what would happen if it was not the thing. And I at no point even considered what I would do if it was a thing. And my reaction, I remember sitting there being like, you are so weird. This is like not how people react to good news. (laughs) But I just like couldn't get myself out of it. So I just sat there like... 
like stone faced, unable to really move, watching Wilson just like cried out across the hallway. And we were like, cool, like high five. Yeah, I can't even like give you a hug. I can't right. hold you. Yeah. So even the way it like got revealed to us was just the most horrible. I mean, it's such good news, obviously. Like, I don't want to make it horrible, but it was just like, oh, we, even this is like kind of tinged with like some bad stuff. Yeah. It all stayed very like scientific and like, don't get excited. Because while most people are maybe not aware that they're pregnant yet, you're like aware that you're pregnant, but also at any moment it could like not be a thing so you prepared so deeply for the no of it not working yeah and then it and then it works yeah and you're pregnant (laughs) yeah um what was pregnancy like I hesitate to say this because there's so many people who like wish they could be pregnant, Mm -hmm. but it was genuinely like the worst I've ever felt in my entire life. And that is like significant (laughs) for me (laughs) having walked through what I've been walking through the last seven years. I've never been sicker. I've never been more miserable. I've never been more scared. And I had this like, twinge of like resentment and I don't I don't know if that's because I never like prepared for like bonding with the baby or if it was all just like too scientific so I couldn't like bond feel like I could bond with the baby or I was too scared of losing the baby (laughs) still scared of losing the baby um yeah but it was like the the worst I threw up every single day of the entire time until the morning of the day he was born. Um, Between like two and 20 times a day. Tried like four or five different meds. None of them really helped. Some of them gave me migraines. So that was cool. And a lot of the treatments I'd been doing before like to help with migraines you can't do when you're pregnant because there's 8 billion rules about how you're allowed to like exist in the world when you're pregnant. Um, and it's just, um, it was the worst. There were times that I was like really, really thankful that we only had the one embryo so that I didn't even ever have to like choose to do it again. Um, and then there were times that I was like devastated that we only had the one embryo because I was like, what if this baby doesn't make it? And then we're really back at square one and I'm not doing this again. And up to and including his birth, (laughs) I woke up every day wondering if he was dead. Bought an ultrasound machine so I could like check his heart rate every night and every morning. Because I also, oh yeah, this is the fun part. Of course, it was like my thing. My placenta was like in the front. So I never really could feel him kick. So around the time you're supposed to be like feeling the baby move and all the things, I never was like really feeling anything until really, really late in the game. Here's this thing that's supposed to be so good. And I still have all this like fear wrapped up in it. And I feel horrible. 
And it's like, do I ever just get to have like good news that doesn't also have like five pieces of bad news? And that's how like every day of the nine months felt. The feeling horrible coupled coupled with the fact that like I had all these friends who we'd been on the same journey for a long time and then like I was pregnant and they weren't. My thing worked and theirs didn't. Um, I just felt like every emotion around it was like awful. Like I never got excited. I didn't want to have a baby shower. I ended up having three because I didn't, I couldn't in good conscience invite all the people that wanted to be a part of it because it had been this long thing and it had been pretty public. Um, but I just couldn't have everybody at one thing. I just didn't feel good about doing that to a host. Um, But I didn't want to have any of them because I kept thinking like, I don't want to have to give all these presents back. Like I don't want to be the one that has to return all these presents because at no point did I feel like it was going to end up in like a baby that I got to hold. I just didn't feel like that was going to be part of my story. And now I get to like hold him You weren't supposed to exist like you're the best. You're like just the best. And then I'm like weeping because I'm like, but why doesn't this friend get to have this? It feels like not fair. It feels like every step of the way it's just been like not fair. And now even though I have the thing that I wanted, it feels not fair. And it's hard to hold space for both of those things feel guilty for having so much joy in this like little person and having so much guilt and fear. So he finally gets here (laughs) and you get to hold him after a hard pregnancy and we don't have to go into it, but a very hard delivery. Yes. Very traumatic. Yeah. (laughs) Probably need therapy on that one too. (laughs) When did you let the joy seep in? I think it's like slowly creeping in like every day. That first day, everything's like, what just happened? And you kind of like stare at this like tiny thing in disbelief, you know? And in my case, I was just like so thankful that he had like lived through the trauma of that whole experience. Um, And I've heard some people say like, it takes them like a a month or a couple months to kind of get into like mom mode. I feel like they handed him to me and I was like, I know exactly how we're going to do this for like the rest of your life. Um, It just felt really, really natural. And my OB had said to me during my pregnancy numerous times, She's like, there's four things about having a child. It's getting pregnant, being pregnant, having the baby, and then your baby. And she's like, not all of them can be good and not all of them can be bad. And so while I was pregnant, she was like, you're getting pregnant and you're being pregnant have been complete garbage. She's like, so either your delivery or your baby are going to be really easy. (laughs) 
My delivery was not easy, (laughs) but my baby is so great. He's just like the happiest, snuggliest, sweetest little thing. And he's so smiley. And it's like every time he smiles, it's like, ah, that was worth it. I don't know if I'd do it again. (laughs) But he's pretty awesome. You talked about that moment of that first doctor saying there's no chance. And you watched that news and the specifics around it hit an effect this man that you love what was it like watching him meet his son i've never been more thankful for somebody to be wrong and um i've never been so happy to see somebody so happy one of the things he says like Almost every day. <laughs> Wallace is so smiley, right? So Wilson will say, Oh, buddy, you just make life worth living. Man, you smile and it makes everything go away. And it's really special to watch. How do you feel like this has... I mean, in a million ways, it probably has. But, like, as you look into the future, what is the thing that you feel like you carry? Or that you just, you walk in differently because of all of this? I think I've always known, maybe not always, but for a long time I've known that there's, like, a heaviness around conceiving and having a child. And it's probably due in part to the fact that like most of my friends got married when we were like in our early twenties and I got married like a decade later. So they were like a couple kids deep by the time they were in my wedding, you know? Um, and I watched them walk through some hard things. And then I've watched some of them have that not even be kind of a part of their story. And then I've watched how that affected the ones who are going through really hard stuff. So, I've always known there's like this like tension and this like heaviness there. And then it was a thing for us as well. Um, I never ask people if they're planning to have kids or when they're planning to have kids because that was like gut wrenching. I felt like it was like the meanest thing. And also it's a weird thing in like Christian culture. It's like you start dating someone and they're like, when are you getting married? And then you like get engaged and they're like, well, when's the date? And it's like, well, can no one enjoy anything? And then you get married and they're like, well, when are you having kids? And then you're going through infertility and they're like, are you guys ever going to have kids? It's something I've been aware of prior to it being part of my story. 
Um, but I'm like extra careful around it when we were like going back and forth about even announcing that we were pregnant, you know, Wilson's like a big celebrator. He's like, Mr. Excited. (laughs) And I'm always like, let's just calm down. (laughs) I'm like, I don't want to like go to the dark place, but I also don't want to get like way too excited. I'm like a realist and he is just like either the eternal optimist or just like the most aggressive pessimist. Like he just, (laughs) he swings pretty heavily and I'm like pretty steady. Um, but he was just so excited and he wanted to announce and he wanted to announce. And I just like did not want any part of that. And so we, we waited a really long time actually. Um, and then when we did, I was like, I don't want to just like say that we're pregnant. I feel like we have to like address the other part of this one because of that mantra that had been in my head for like a couple years at that three, almost four years at that point, like that this pain has purpose. I'm like, it has to serve like a purpose. And I have been the person who was just scrolling through Instagram and like saw an announcement and like thought it was going to kill me. And I just didn't want to be that for somebody else, especially when I knew that some of my very best friends were like in the same boat and like still waiting. So for sure, that's like one of the biggest takeaways for me is like, don't ask people what their plans are. Like let them tell you if they want to. And then for me personally, like in my heart and like my like journey and faith and all that stuff. It's been learning how to like hold space for intensely differing emotions and being strong enough and mature enough and open enough to let them both coexist and, and literally tell them both they matter without letting them like rule my life. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Juniper and Journey podcast. If you heard something that resonated with you or that you have questions about, we would love to hear from you. Follow us on Instagram at Juniper and Journey and slide into our DMs. It would be our treat and total privilege to chat with you. We all have a story. If you're interested in sharing yours here on the podcast, please reach out. Bye for now. Cheers. Cheers.